You know, when I was a kid, one of my favorite television shows was the show Mission Impossible. Ran from 62, like about 11 years. And so there's the Mission Impossible team. And you see in the background, there's Spock. This was the pre-Star Trek days. But uh, um, I really enjoyed the show. And then I've really enjoyed uh, the movies, the six movies that uh, were made with Tom Tom Cruise. And, but I really liked that TV show because I'd never seen anything like it when I was a kid. But every week, uh, the team would find a little tape recorder and it would say, your mission, should you decide to accept it, and then it would be like something, uh, to, your mission is to save the entire world, though the chances of survival are three trillion to one. And oh, by the way, you only have 24 hours to do it. And somehow they had to get to like East Berlin and, you know, and do all this. Yeah, I don't know how that, how that worked. But of course, every week the team leader, uh, the Mission Impossible team leader would kind of accept the job and he had this confident smirk. I mean, never once did I ever uh, hear him say, no, I think we're going to pass on this one. Uh, he always would do it. He would smile and, because he knew that next week they would be there for another assignment. And uh, you remember what happened after that. Then that little tape recorder uh, would self-destruct in a puff of, of flame and smoke, which I think was one of the first examples of government waste. But uh, anyway, the, the show, the movies, you know, they're fun to watch. They're very intense. They keep you on the edge of your seat. And now here in John chapters uh, 15 and 16, we have a real Mission Impossible, or so it seemed. Now, here's the setting. We're in John 16, same place we've been in since John 13. It's Thursday night, Passion Week. Jesus is with his disciples, and he's giving them his final instructions, his final promises, his final warnings. The night starts with a Passover meal in a rented room, and then after supper, they sing a hymn, and they leave the building, and they start to walk through the dark streets of Jerusalem on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they're walking and talking. And Jesus begins again to teach them and instruct them on what life is going to be like after he returns to the Father. And he tells those disciples that they need to stay connected to, to him. They need to abide in him. And he gives them some incredible promises about being fruitful and having their prayers answered and experiencing God's love and being able to pass that love on uh, to others. So, so the evening starts, it's all about love, God's love for them and their love for one another. But then in chapter 15, verse 18, the whole conversation takes a turn and there's a new word that's introduced and that word is hate. Jesus has been saying, as you stay connected to me, God will pour his love out on you but at the same time, the world will pour out hate on you. In 1519, he says the world will hate you. In 1520, he says the world will persecute you. In 16:2, he says they're going to throw you out of the synagogue, meaning they're going to cancel your social identity in the Jewish culture. And then he says they're going to kill you. And he, he explains to them why they and why we will be hated. He says, it's because I chose you out of the world and you are not a part of the world system. Now, last week we saw, uh, we, I gave you a definition of the world and the world is the organized system of unbelief that stands in opposition to God and the truth that has come to us in Jesus. The world system at work in Jesus' day and in our day is Satan's system. He and his demon armies wage war against the purposes of God in the world and the people of God. And that's why Paul wrote later in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that our battle, we don't, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, look at this, over this present darkness over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So make no mistake about it. What's going on right now in our country, on the left and on the right, the injustice, the hatred, the division, the lies and deceit, the lawlessness and the violence, the corruption, the perversion, the censorship, it's not first and foremost about politics. It's a spiritual battle that's going on. 
Behind the scenes, a spiritual battle is raging, and to my thinking, it's not as much about our country as it is about the church. So they're walking and talking, and Jesus' teaching has changed from love to hate, and so the evening has become even more puzzling. Like, more puzzling, what do I mean by that? Well, you remember, first of all, Jesus said, I'm leaving, I'm going back to the Father, I'm going to die, and previously he was very explicit about the things that were gonna happen leading up to his crucifixion, and the disciples are terrified by all this. They don't wanna think about it, they don't wanna talk about it, they don't want an explanation about it, they just wanna push it out of their minds, and so as they get closer and closer to the reality that Jesus is gonna die, they get more and more scared. Their fears worsen. Now, earlier, Judas, the betrayer, left the upper room, and he's now working his plan with the Jewish religious leaders, the Roman soldiers, and the temple police, and they're all gonna show up in the Garden of Gethsemane in the middle of the night, and they're gonna arrest Jesus, and that system is gonna push Jesus through a fake trial, an illegal trial, and then they will have him executed on the cross the next day. So the 11 disciples are overwhelmed by fear and confusion. And it's like, it's like, they're saying like, Jesus, you say you're gonna prepare a place for us. We have no idea what you're talking about. We don't know where you're going. We don't know how, how we're gonna get there. You say you're gonna give us peace and, and joy and love, but we don't feel it. The only thing we feel is terror. We're distressed, we're anxious, we have no peace. We don't feel any joy. And not only that, but you say, you expect us to represent you in the world and then and, and tell people about you, but then you turn around and tell us that when we do, that people are gonna hate us and persecute us and ostracize us and kill us, which by the way, did come true. I mean, essentially all of the apostles were murdered except maybe for John, who was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, but some say that he was, he, he was martyred by being boiled in oil. Now, so you can see their dilemma, right? I mean, you gotta feel something of how they would be feeling that light, night. I mean, do you, do you hear them asking this question? I mean, how in the world are we supposed to reach the world and share with people who don't know God uh, about you and then see people come to faith in you if people are gonna hate us, persecute us, cancel us, and kill us? Jesus, you're asking us to do the impossible. See, this is the real mission impossible. And Jesus is saying, your mission, should you decide to accept it, is to preach the good news of my salvation to people who will hate you. You understand that that's the mission we're on today, right? I mean, I said at the end of my message last week, the world is growing darker and the hostility is getting louder. And we see that all around us. And, and, and Jesus is saying the same thing to us. Your mission, should you, should you decide to accept it, is to live out your faith and to share the gospel with people who will belittle you, ridicule you, hate you, mock you, dismiss you, cancel you, and want nothing to do with you. So the question is, how in the world is that possible? How are we gonna be able to confront this hostile, hateful, persecuting world with the gospel and have any success on this mission? And Jesus, and this is, again, I say this just about every week, I love the Bible because it's so clear, but Jesus gives us a very clear answer to that question in the verses that we're about to dig into. He says, you can do this because even though I'm going away, I'm going to send you another helper just like me. Now, who's... Who's that? Well, back in chapter 14, verse 16, he said, I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another helper, another parakletos, another one to come alongside you and help you, just like me. And he says in 1426, the Holy Spirit, the helper, will, bring to your, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance everything I said to you. He says the same thing at the end of 1526, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, he will bear witness to me, and look at this, verse 27, here it is, you will also bear witness about me. You will bear witness about me. That's the mission. 
bearing witness to Jesus, telling people about Jesus. He says it again in 16.7, it's to your advantage that I go away, because if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I'll send him to you. And again in 16.13, he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, and he will reveal to you the things I can't tell you now, my paraphrase. Now, the, the, so the answer to the disciples' question, how are we going to be able to carry out this mission impossible to people who hate us, the answer to that question is, the Spirit is going to come, he will take my place, the Spirit of truth will help you, it's the same Spirit that's been with you in me, but he's going to live in you after I'm gone, and this great promise, of course, was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And since then, every follower of Jesus has had the spirit of Jesus living inside them to empower them for life and mission with Jesus. But the question is, how exactly is the helper going to help us carry out the mission that Jesus has entrusted to us? So follow along as I read uh, chapter 16, verses 4 to 15. Remember, again, Jesus has been telling the 11 how the world will hate them and persecute them, and he says in 16.1, I'm telling you all these things now so you won't fall away. And then in verse four, my paraphrase, he says, yes, I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, you'll, you'll remember my warning. And then he says, I didn't tell you this earlier because I was going to be with you a little while longer, verse five, but now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you is continuing to ask me where are you going. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged, verse 12. But I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. So, since I can't say them to you now... When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. In other words, the rest of the truth you will need for life and mission with me, but I can't tell you now because you can't bear it. But he will guide you into all the truth. He won't speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, I'm going to focus today on verses 8 through 11, but it is essential that you understand what Jesus is saying in verse 13 in order to understand the convicting ministry of the Spirit that Jesus talks about in verses 8 through 11. Jesus is specifically talking about uh, the convicting work of the Spirit in the world. How the Spirit will confront and call to account people that are locked into the world system. Now here's what he's saying. I'm just going to tell you up front. You're not going to understand where I get this until I give it to you and then we unpack it. Okay? Here's, where, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the primary role in ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world is to equip the Spirit-filled church of God with the Spirit-inspired Word of God. That's where he's going. I'm going to have to unpack it. It's not clear right now. I get that. But the primary role in ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world is to equip the Spirit-filled church of God with the Spirit-inspired Word of God. Now, so stay with me. I'm going to show that to you. Again, Jesus... By the way, this is a hard passage. Okay, so you're going to have to go and turn on your like thinking and focus, it's a hard passage. Jesus is talking about how the spirit of truth will help us speak the truth to a world that is blinded by Satan and held captive to his lies. 
He's saying that is the Spirit's primary mission in the world. Now, yes, of course, by abiding in Christ, by staying connected to Jesus, the Holy Spirit works in our life to produce Christ-like qualities that we saw on the screen from Galatians. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The Spirit works those things in and out of our life. And he, the Holy Spirit also gives us the strength and boldness we need in empowering us for witness. So yes, he's going to provide all those things. That is his ministry in the life of the believer. But here Jesus is talking about the work of the Spirit in the world. But first, he is telling the apostles how the Spirit's going to work in the world. Specifically, he's telling his apostles that the ministry of the Spirit of truth to them will be to teach them all things and bring to their remembrance everything Jesus said. That the Spirit will guide them into all truth. That is his role to the apostles. He is going to reveal truth to them, to reveal the teaching of Christ to them, to reveal the truth that will be needed for the future mission of the church. And I'm saying that right here, what we have is a promise from Jesus to the apostles that he will put all that truth in their hands. The whole truth about who Jesus is and why he came. He's talking about what will eventually be written down in the four gospels. The story of Christ, everything he said, the teaching of Christ, the Spirit is going to bring that back to their minds so they can pass it down to us. And then the Spirit will give them Jesus' instruction for the churches. And, and that will be written down. And then he'll tell them about the future, which takes us all the way through the book of Revelation. You ready for this? This is a promise of the divine inspiration of what we call the New Testament. It is the spirit of truth that will reveal to the apostles and their associates the rest of the truth that Jesus could not tell his disciples on that night because they weren't ready to hear it. One more time, this is a promise of the divine inspiration of the New Testament. Listen carefully. It is the internal ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer to make every promise Christ ever gave to make that personal to us. The Holy Spirit working in our lives makes Jesus personal to us. That's the ministry of the Spirit in you, his etern internal ministry in you. But what's being talked about right here is there's also an external provision given by the Spirit, an external ministry of the Spirit that he will bring to us through the apostles, and that is the Holy Spirit will give us what we now call the New Testament. He's going to give us spirit-inspired truth, spirit-inspired scripture. We all know that Paul says all scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, is God-breathed, and the Holy Spirit is the breath of God. Peter says that the scriptures... He's talking about Old Testament, but Peter is already recognizing that the things that Paul writes down are Scripture. So Peter says that all Scriptures, old and what will become new, have come to us as men were moved by the Spirit to write down what God inspired. One more time, this is a promise of the divine inspiration of what we call our New Testament. The Helper will help us by equipping us with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians 6, 17. So we can speak God's truth to this world, to people and world systems that are opposed to God and the people of God. Okay, so you're, are you with me so far? Maybe. Uh, okay, you thinking about lunch? Yeah, okay, all right. So now, that's gonna get worse. All right. 
I'm telling you, this is a hard passage. Verse eight. So we've got to go back. With that, with that understanding, go back to verse eight. And when he comes, when the spirit of truth comes, the spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, this is brief. It's to the point. It's definitive. It's profound. It's all-encompassing and it is hard to understand. I mean, the first one, concerning sin because they don't believe in me, I get that. But like concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, what's that about? Concerning judgment because the prince of this world has been judged, what's that about? We, we, have, we really need to understand this. Now, let me just start here. Jesus' purpose in sharing this is to encourage them and us that the mission that Jesus called us, calls us to is not impossible. Despite the fact that the world will hate us and persecute us. These words are meant to encourage us. And encouragement is something we need today, right? But we got to understand them in order to get the encouragement. And they're hard to understand. Okay, so Jesus has given us the spirit of truth, the helper, to come alongside to help us fulfill our mission. Because if we're going to go into a hostile world, we're going to have to have supernatural power to help us break through the hatred and the hostility and the persecution, right? So in the days ahead, as the world grows darker and the hostility gets louder, Jesus assures us that we have exactly what we need to face what's coming. That we have everything we need to be the church of God to face what's coming. One more time, what is that? What has he given us? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God to equip us for life and mission with Jesus, to equip us for the spiritual battle that is raging all around us. Now, here's the problem with these verses. Most people read these verses and they hear Jesus saying, here's the help I will give you. The Holy Spirit is gonna work in the hearts and minds and lives of unbelievers to make them know that they're sinful and unrighteous and they are headed for judgment. The Holy Spirit's gonna work in the life, internal life of, the, of unbelievers to show them that they're guilty. Now, that's true, but it's not what these verses are saying. This isn't talking about the internal ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers or unbelievers. It's not primarily about the Holy Spirit working the hearts of unbelievers to turn their hearts from sin to God. It, that's, it is true, and I want to affirm clearly, it is true. No one will ever repent and believe the gospel apart from the Holy Spirit's work in their life. We understand that. 2 Timothy 2.25 says, it is God, through the Holy Spirit, who grants repentance. So true. Let me give you an example of that. There was a preacher that I knew back in the 70s. He pastored, his name was Frank Barker, and he pastored a large Presbyterian church in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, it was Briarwood Presbyterian. After the first service, somebody came up and said, you know, Frank's still alive, and he's still on, on staff at that church. He must be 103. But anyway, uh, he said, and, I, and I heard Frank speak at Navigator conferences and Bible conferences when I was in college. Now, uh, when Frank was in seminary, he was already preaching, and he was preparing for a lifetime of ministry, and of course, he was what outsiders would call a very religious person, but as strange as it sounds, looking back, Frank would later confess that during that time, he was not a Christian. Here's what happened. One day, a chaplain led Frank to faith in Christ by asking him, Frank, why are you so anxious all the time? And Frank said, I don't know. I'm, I'm really trying my best to be a good Christian, but it never seems like it's enough. And the chaplain asked, well, Frank, why do you think God would receive you into his heaven? And Frank said, I'm trying my best. Well, the chaplain said, Frank, Christianity is not a matter of you developing a righteousness that you give to God it's a matter of God giving you the righteousness that comes from Jesus. 
And Frank says, well, where does it say that? And the chaplain showed Frank from the scriptures and he got it just like that. I mean, the lights came, came on and, and his eyes were open and he saw it and his whole life changed. And he began to meet with the chaplain on a regular basis and one day Frank asked the chaplain, why didn't Martin Luther see this? Now, by the way, this is Reformation Sunday, uh, October 31st, 1517, was when uh, Martin Luther confronted the world religious system of his, his day with the truth of the gospel, what has come to be known as the five solas, sola means alone, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation was scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And Luther spoke these truths to a religious system that stood in opposition to these foundational truths of the gospel. Well, anyway, Frank says, well, why didn't Luther know about these things? And the chaplain says, what do you mean? Martin Luther knew all about it. I, I got it from Luther. And Frank says, well, I took a class on Martin Luther last semester, and I got an A in the course. And I read his commentary on Galatians, and I studied it. And, and there was nothing about that in here, in there. And the chaplain says, well, Frank, go back and read it again. So Frank got the book out, and he flipped it open. He started looking through the pages, and he had all kinds of marginal notes and highlighted, things were, the gospel was highlighted and underlined, and there it was, right in front of him, the gospel, that we're helpless to save ourselves. We've got to have Christ's rightness with God, or we'll be lost forever. It was right there on every page, and Frank thought, what was, matter? what was the matter with me? What was the matter? Well, you can't see it until the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to it. So yes, absolutely, it's true. No one can repent. No one will repent. No one will ever want to repent apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit awakens people to the guilt of their sin and the truth of the gospel, and they are granted faith to believe. That's true, it's just not the point of this passage. So what's the point? What's Jesus talking about? This is very important. Um, let's start with the word convict in verse eight. Now when we think about the word convict, it's easy just to sort of give the word a contemporary meaning like when you say, you know, I was convicted that I ate way too much last night. Now what do you mean by that? You, you mean, I really felt bad that I ate too much last night. Well, that is not what this word means. It's, the Holy Spirit's business in the world is not to, people, not to make people feel bad. Um, in the Greek, this word, alincho, basically means to confront, to expose, to show people their sin and call them to repentance, to show people their sin and call them to repentance, or an even more direct way to say it is to convict means to announce a guilty verdict. Like in a trial, when a person is convicted of a crime, the verdict is that they're guilty, okay? But again, here, Jesus isn't talking about the internal ministry of the Holy Spirit like the internal conviction of the Spirit. No, he's talking about, follow me, Talking about how the Spirit, through the apostles, through the inspired New Testament, the apostles and their associates would write down and pass down from generation to generation. He's talking about how the word of the Spirit in the New Testament, spoken through us, will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit of God, speaking the word of God, through the church of God, will render a guilty verdict on people who reject Jesus and call them to repentance. That's the tool that the Spirit has given us. So yes, the Spirit opened Frank Barker's eyes to the truth of the gospel, but how did he do that? Through a chaplain taking this book and opening it up and showing them how his life was out of line with the gospel. And Jesus is saying to the apostles, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you, and the Spirit will reveal the truth to you 
The rest of the truth I can't share with you now, the rest of the truth that is absolutely essential that the church will need in the future, and, and that truth, he's saying, will equip you for the mission that I'm calling you to carry out in my name. It will equip you to bear witness of me. Think about how bankrupt we would be if we were trying to share the truth of Jesus that was passed down orally through the church for centuries, but we didn't have this book. First, that truth was called the apostles' doctrine that they, they preached. And then it was written down and applied to the church, uh, the churches and the problems that the early Christians faced in those churches, which is, of course, our New Testament. It is this book that we hold in our hand today that brings a charge against a world in rebellion against God. This spirit-inspired book spoken by the church with compassion, it declares God's final guilty verdict on sin and righteousness and judgment. On sin, which speaks of people's guilt. Of righteousness, which speaks of people's helplessness before God. Of judgment that speaks about people's destiny apart from Christ. Of sin, we are all guilty. And what does the Spirit-inspired word tell us? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Of righteousness, we are powerless to help ourselves. What does the Spirit say in his word? God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The spirit of judgment, we cannot escape. Our eternal destiny is fixed apart from divine help. And the spirit says that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. Those three words, sin, righteousness, and judgment are the outline of the gospel. Uh, one more time, sin. Jesus died to pay the penalty of sin for the whole world, but only those who believe in him will stand guiltless before the Father. He's not talking about sins like breaking uh, the Ten Commandments. This is about the sin of rejecting Christ. See it? The Spirit will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The sin is unbelief. That's unbelief. Rejecting Jesus is the condemning sin. Jesus said, if you do not believe in me, you will die in your sin, John 8, 34. Now, that's easy to understand. Now, this is where it gets tough. You're gonna have to follow me. You have to stay with me. Righteousness refers to a person's legal standing before God as not guilty. And in this context, Jesus relates this issue of righteousness to his going to the Father. Verse 10, the Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. Well, what does that mean? Okay, all through Jesus' ministry, he claimed to be one with the Father. But the world, the Jewish religious system, accused him of sin, deceit, blasphemy, and being demon-possessed. The world religious system of his day rendered a guilty verdict on Jesus and they put him to death. Now get this. Verse 10 is saying that when Jesus returned to the Father, his ascension back to the Father is the ultimate vindication of Jesus' righteousness. The ultimate vindication by God. God says, not guilty. He died, I raised him from the dead, and I brought him into the highest heavens and seated him at my right, home, right hand. I've ex I have exalted him and given him a name above all names. You said he was guilty. I say he's not guilty, and it's his righteousness that you have to have in order to come into my presence where he is. That's what he's saying. The Spirit-inspired 
world-confronting truth of Scripture is this. The sin that condemns you is the sin of rejecting Christ. The righteousness that saves you is the righteousness that belongs to Christ. And if you're ever gonna be declared not guilty before God, you must be right with God like Jesus was right with God. You've got to have God give you his righteousness. Well, how is that possible? Well, when you trust Christ for salvation, God gives you the righteousness of Christ. That's what the chaplain told Frank. You can't develop it. You can't perform your way into it. You're helpless. You can't do it. You'll never be good enough. He said, but, you ha- but God wants to give you the rightness of Christ. He wants to give that to you, and when you put your faith in him, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Christ, because on the cross he took your sinfulness and my sinfulness onto himself, when you through faith believe in him, you become the righteousness of God in him. And God declares you not guilty, you see. And judgment, verse 11, because the ruler of this world is judged. Okay, here we go again. Like, what does that mean? Okay, so when I started the message, did you kind of wonder why I brought Satan into all of this talk about the world and how the world system is demon-inspired? Like, where did that come from? Well, I put it in there at the beginning of the message because here it is kind of in the, almost to the middle end of the message. Jesus brings it up, not me. Jesus tells us that the ruler of this world, Satan, has been judged. And there's lots of scriptures that talk about that. Genesis 3.15 says that uh, Satan's head is crushed. Colossians 2, the powers of Satan and hell are all defeated at the cross. Hebrews 2, the one who had the power of death is destroyed by Christ. You can go to Revelation where Satan is bound and then he is cast into the lake of fire with all his demons forever. Here's the point. The world, Satan, working through the world system, judged Christ as guilty. But the fact of the matter is, on the cross, Satan was judged guilty, and so was the organization. So if the organization is guilty, that condemned Jesus, then the world system is also condemned. And here's the point. Do you remember, um, as the time of Jesus' death drew near, Jesus told his disciples in John 12, 31, he said, now is the time of judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Jesus is talking about his death on the cross. Now, the demon-inspired religious and government systems that opposed the purposes of God in Christ and and declared Jesus guilty and crucified him, they thought they had won. But the truth is, on the cross, Jesus won the victory over sin and judgment and death and hell, and the ruler of this world was judged, meaning he's received God's final verdict of guilty and now all that awaits him is the final day when he will be cast into the lake of fire and there he'll be forever and after Jesus returned to the father after he was vindicated as righteous by the father as not guilty despite the world's judgment the helper the spirit of truth continues to prove the world wrong in its judgment of us. See, he convicts the world of judgment because the head of the organization has already been judged. And so anything that comes at us from the world, it's not judgment. It's not judgment. The tables are turned because this book, the spirit through this book, turns the tables and judges the world. We're not judged by the, the, and we're not judged by the world because the prince of the world now stands condemned. You'll probably have to listen to this message twice. I, I can't, I, it's, it's hard to understand. I mean, it's, look, it's Jesus. He doesn't always say things straight up. So the ruler of the world, the distorter of judgment, stands condemned, and the work of the Holy Spirit today, the mission of the Spirit 
in the world today is to prove wrong those in the world, the people and the, and the, and the world systems who continue to distort judgment in relation to Jesus and to us. So here's the big idea. All right, this will make sense. The church of God, filled with the spirit of God, speaking the word of God, will confront the world and its lies with the truth of God. That's, that's what Jesus is saying, I think. The church of God, filled with the spirit of God, speaking the word of God, will confront the world and its lies with the truth of God. With the truth that has come to us in Jesus. We are on a mission with Jesus. And as we live and share the truth of scripture with those who do not know God, the spirit does his work of convicting the world. He convicts the world through spirit-inspired scripture spoken through spirit-filled people. Church, our mission is possible. No matter how dark the days ahead may become, no matter how loud the voices of hostility become, the church on mission with Jesus has been successful for 2,000 years. In spite of 2,000 years of hate, being hated and hunted and ostracized and canceled and killed. We are to talk about sin, the sin of not believing in Jesus. That's the sin by which unbelievers are condemned when they reject Christ. That is the sin. We are commissioned to talk about righteousness. In other words, about how we can Never be good enough to make ourselves good enough to earn or deserve God's favor. No, God has to give us his rightness, the righteousness of Christ through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if anyone rejects that truth, we must lovingly tell them that one day they will stand before God's judgment bench and they will be declared guilty, and they will be banished from God's presence forever in the hell that God has prepared for the devil and his angels. We gotta talk about that too. For 2,000 years, that message has not been popular. People whose lives have been founded on the truth of scripture and on the gospel have been hunted and hated and persecuted and ostracized and killed. Today, it is estimated that over 260 million Christians worldwide face some kind of persecution because of their faith in Jesus. They face persecution of some sort every single day. 260 million Christians. And it's coming home to us. I ask you, are you comfortable letting this message, what Jesus says here, are you comfortable letting this message shape your life? Are you comfortable sharing that message with someone who thinks it's nonsense, who thinks it's irrelevant, who thinks it's dangerous? It certainly was dangerous for those apostles when they first began preaching Christ crucified, risen, and ascended, when they begin calling, began calling people to account for their rejection of Christ. Now very quickly, I wanna show you how this sin, righteousness, and judgment outline was the foundation of the preaching of the early church. You can just listen or you can turn to Acts chapter two. But I'm gonna try to go through this pretty quickly. But Acts chapter two, is the first sermon ever preached by an apostle. Preached on the day of Pentecost after the Holy Spirit had come to fill the apostles. This is Peter's first spirit-filled sermon. This is how he preaches the gospel. Men of Israel, verse 22. Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this man, 
delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The Holy Spirit, through Peter, is convicting this crowd and declaring them guilty for the sin of rejecting Christ. Now, notice the second thing, verse 24. But God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death. So then he quotes spirit-inspired scripture from the Psalms and then go all the way down to verse 32 again. And God raised him up, verse 33, and exalted him to the right hand of God. That's righteousness. That's vindication. Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God and it is his vindication, his righteousness that God accepts and that alone. And unless you have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, you have no hope. And finally, verse 34, Peter preached judgment. He said, it wasn't David who ascended into heaven, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, look at this, until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. That's judgment. In other words, God's going to crush the enemies of Christ. Therefore, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So there it is. There's the outline. Sin, righteousness, judgment. They understood it. I mean, we're struggling to. They didn't, they didn't get it until after they had spent another 50 days with Jesus and the Holy Spirit came. Now, I hear you. You're thinking, well, wow. I mean, if you share that kind of message, people are going to run. Not always. Look what happened. Look at the rest of the story. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Now, that's the internal conviction of the Holy Spirit right there. They were pierced to the heart. The Holy Spirit's at work inside them. How was he working inside? Because of him working through Peter and Peter's words on the outside. And, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what do we do? What do we do? And you remember the answer, verse 40. With many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, be saved from this crooked and perverse generation. That's how Peter characterized the religious world of that time, the governmental wor world of that time. That's more judgment. Peter, God, Spirit, through Peter, declares a guilty verdict on the Jewish religious system that did not receive the truth of God that has come to them in in, in Jesus, and then what happened? Well, they, they repented and they believed, and so those who received his word, his, the spirit-inspired word, were baptized, and that day, how many people got saved? 3,000 souls, and that was the beginning of the church, and then we read they continually were devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine. The more truth is to come, you see and fellowship, and breaking of bread and prayer. Listen, sometimes you preach this message, you get in trouble. Sometimes God works in amazing ways to bring people to faith in Christ in the midst of trouble. But, but the outcome, the trouble is not the point, is it? It's we're to be faithful to our mission no matter what the results might be. Think of it this way. The Spirit of God has given the church of God, the word of God, the word of truth, and being on mission with Jesus means that we live that truth and stay faithful to that truth and speak that truth with conviction and compassion so that the world knows that our Lord reigns, that Jesus, who died, rose from the dead, ascended back to heaven, who sits in the highest heaven on the throne at the right hand of God, he rules over everything from galaxies to governments. And when we proclaim that message, some people, some, thank you, okay, some people will be saved out of this crooked and perverse generation. This word is God's final verdict on sin and righteousness and judgment. This word is the truth. And as the world grows darker and the hostility gets louder, we as the people of God 
must take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and stand firm in the battle for the hearts and minds and souls of those who've been taken captive by the lies of this demon-inspired world system. And Jesus, the mission Jesus has given us is possible because he's given us his spirit-inspired word to carry into the spiritual battles every single day. And I hope that's a great encouragement to you to help you navigate what's coming in the days ahead. Listen, no matter who wins this election, we have to be the people of God. We have to be the church of God, united by the word of God, united by the spirit of God, never any political party or platform. Our identity has to be rooted in Christ, not in politics, not as a Democrat or Republican or Libertarian or an independent or whatever. Politics divides us. Christ unites us. And that ought to be our focus. Because you see, Jesus died to save us from our sin, to give us his righteousness so we wouldn't come under judgment. And you know what that means for us? You and I live every day having already heard the final verdict of the last day. We live under the banner and the declaration of not guilty because of Jesus. Every day we live under that. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And through us, the Holy Spirit will bring to faith people who are trapped in this crooked and perverse generation, no matter what the hate or the hostility or the persecution comes our way, as we love each other in spite of our differences and as we stay faithful to the mission of Jesus, we will see God do amazing things in the days ahead. I hope you know that. Amen, amen. Father God, thank you for this word of Jesus, this encouraging word, and I pray for, for our church that we would be united around the banner of Christ, that every single person in the room, no matter what political persuasion they are, I pray that every single person in the room their identity, my identity, their identity, our identity would be rooted in Jesus. I mean, Lord, the fact is some people are gonna be happy and some people are gonna be disappointed. That's just a, a fact. And there's nothing wrong with being happy or disappointed, but what is wrong is if we can't come together around this word, bonded by your spirit, to carry out your mission in this world. So help us to love each other and support each other and encourage each other to be the church of God that has been equipped with the word of God to speak the spirit of God's message to those who are lost and living in darkness. Use Fellowship Greenville in a mighty way to see men, women, and children and students come to faith in Jesus. We pray in his name, amen.